1945 was a game changer in the history of humanity. It's the point at which we crossed the threshold where we could destroy the species for the first time. How often do you think about nuclear weapons? Is it about as often as you thought about pandemics in 2019? I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This and iHeartRadio, where we examine power through the stories of people who have it. One weird power that a few people on Earth hold, the internationally legal ability to vaporize millions of people in an instant. I really wanted to know, how worried should I or anyone else be about the possibility of nuclear war right now as we're starting year two of another apocalyptic scenario? Today, for another special uncut interview edition of Who Is, I got in touch with Joan Rolfing, President and Chief Operating Officer of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. I'm Joan Rolfing. I'm an expert in national security issues who has focused most of my professional life on understanding threats from nuclear weapons and on working to mitigate and eliminate those threats. I'm currently the president of an organization called the Nuclear Threat Initiative. What is nonproliferation and why did you choose to devote your life to this field? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because uh, I'll start by saying I really don't like the word nonproliferation, don't like to use that word to describe my work. Um, nonproliferation is one of those words, you know, starting with the word non, it's like a non-word. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I think it obscures uh, what we're trying to communicate and also what I do, and it's, and it's too narrow. So I want to offer an alternative description, which is I'm working on existential risk. I'm an existential security expert and focused on creating the systems and practices we need to keep the world safe from preventable global catastrophes. Would you say with regards to a phrase like nonproliferation that uh, the P Pandora's box has already been opened, that the cat's already out of the bag? We've already, proliferation's already happened, so nonproliferation is not necessarily relevant. Is that part of it? Yeah, I, that's part of it. I mean, there's no question that the cat is out of the bag in terms of, you know, we invented a new technology in 1945, the beginning of the atomic age with the, the successful test of the first atomic weapon and then the use of those weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, that marked a real turning point in the history of mankind. It was the first technology we developed that gave us the capacity to end the human species if we don't manage and steward the positive sides of, of nuclear technology, the capability for nuclear medicine and, and nuclear power generation. And so I view the challenge of managing nuclear technology as a broader challenge than simply preventing its proliferation. And that's one of the reasons I feel like the word non-proliferation, so non-proliferation just for the audience, um, that word is often used to describe the work of governments to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons to other states. But that's only a piece of the job that we have to manage. Of course, we don't want nuclear weapons to spread to more and more states, but we have plenty of nuclear weapons in the world already. And we have to find ways to reduce the risks from those weapons to come up with a better system for controlling and reducing and eliminating those weapons and for managing the technology in perpetuity. And so that's a, a somewhat broader set of activities than what the word non-proliferation typically connotes. I think that narrows pretty significantly the, the scope of the challenge. Right. Because like uh, when we think about this challenge before 2020 or before even late 2019, a lot of people thought a pandemic wasn't reality's problem. It was science fiction's problem. No one was really worried about pandemics. And then, of course, that happened. It changed everything. What should listeners be aware of when it comes to the nuclear threat and where things stand today? Yeah. So, you know, I regret I regret to say that in the same way pandemics can happen. And we've all learned that, you know, in a, in a visceral way, we get it now, we understand that. Um, of course, you know, there have been experts working on preventing pandemics for years, but it was easy to discount it because, you know, we're a century plus away from the last really major global pandemic. You know, regrettably, I, I need to inform the audience that 
the nuclear threat is real. We are at an extraordinarily precarious moment in the history of nuclear technology. A lot of people don't understand because we don't see it in the news a lot. People aren't aware. And since it's not in the news a lot, we assume that that threat has gone away. But I think we're living in an era where the complexity of our nuclear systems and the dynamic between nuclear states, the growing number of nuclear states, has all increased the potential for a nuclear detonation, nuclear use, whether intentional or inadvertent, whether by accident or uh, blunder. And uh, so much so that I think we have a higher risk of use now, today, at this moment, than we did at any other time except maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s. So uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous moment. Nuclear threats are real. Uh, a nuclear attack could happen, but it doesn't have to. This is a preventable catastrophe. It's a man-made threat, and there are man-made solutions to walk back from the precipice. And on this moment, uh, a 2020 report from, from the NTI uh, says, quote, the global risk environment is characterized by growing disorder and disruption. So translated, what does that mean? And why is this moment so precarious? Right. So uh, that's a report published where we do a stock take every couple of years, looking at how we're doing and securing uh, weapons usable nuclear material around the world. And the reference to growing disorder and disruption is a recognition that we're in a period where geopolitical tensions between nuclear adversaries has been growing, um, particularly between the US and Russia, the US and China, India and Pakistan. There are different configurations of, of nuclear um, competition uh, and you know, growing risk that as a result of the growing competition, the growing political tension, the modernization of nuclear systems, the introduction of new technologies, and even just the fact that you know, there's a lot more complexity uh, associated with the growth of nuclear states. There are nine states that have nuclear weapons in the world today. It's a much more complex environment, and uh, therefore the challenge of, of man managing that is even greater. And, and to be clear, when we're thinking about where, where the nukes are, uh, what, which countries have the vast majority of the world's weapons, and which are the, where are the nukes that keep you up at night? So nukes that keep me up at night, <laughs> virtually anywhere they are, uh, they keep me up at night. But just to kind of give the audience a feel for, I mentioned nine nuclear weapon states, uh, Russia, US, India, Pakistan, China, France, UK, North Korea. I have not been counting. So I think that's all of them. <laughs> I might have forgotten one. Russia and U.S. by far have the majority of the global arsenal. Between our two countries, we maintain more than 90% of all of the weapons in the world. Um, there are today uh, between 13 and 14,000 nuclear weapons globally. That's a huge number. But the good news is it's a much smaller number than it was at the height of the Cold War. And that's because the U.S. and Russia have done a lot of good work through arms control treaty negotiations to bring their force levels down. Unfortunately, the complexity is growing because uh, other states are, are increasing their arsenals and have joined the nuclear ranks, even as the US and Russian arsenals have come down. Um, most other states have on the order of roughly a couple of hundred weapons. Uh, it varies by state, but even India and Pakistan now are are assessed to have something on the order of 150 weapons each. And so just, you know, back to your question, what ke keeps me up at night, I would say, you know, are, are predominantly two risk environments. One is, as I mentioned earlier, the growing political tensions between the US and Russia and the complexity of our arsenals. I worry less about intentional use of nuclear weapons uh, but I worry a lot about a miscalculation or a blunder or an accident. And because we have so many weapons 
and a large number of weapons ready to launch on a moment's notice. If the president were to give an order, they could literally be launched in a matter of just a minute or two. Um, that's a very precarious situation. I also worry a lot about India and Pakistan. Uh, we know that there are high tensions between those two countries. We know they have had wars or near wars, including a pretty dramatic event two years ago, almost exactly, where you know there's constantly insurgency terrorist attacks along the disputed border area between the two countries. It's not even officially a border, it's a line of control. And, and two years ago, there was a terrorist attack on Indian forces. Uh, the Indians counterattacked, the Pakistanis counterattacked, uh, Indian plane was shot down. Some claim that a Pakistani plane was shot down as well. This could easily have escalated into war and there's always the potential there for a nuclear exchange which uh, by the way there's been some interesting uh, work done on the impact of a regional nuclear exchange between india and pakistan and how the nuclear winter it would create would affect most of the northern hemisphere for an extended period of time and potentially lead to the starvation of up to a billion people so we all have to be vested in how each other is doing. It's not just something happening over there. Right. Even if someone super cynically were to say, why? I, I don't live in India or Pakistan. That's not my problem. Uh, it is everyone's problem if, if there's any kind of any kind of nuclear conflict is, is a global problem. A absolutely. And look what the pandemic has completely underscored is how interconnected we are globally how easy it is for global supply chains to be disrupted. And now imagine, you know, not just that there's a virus, don't, not to minimize that, this has been a really dramatic and, and traumatic uh, event for the world, the pandemic that is, but now imagine that you wipe out tens of millions of people in a certain part of the world and that there's fallout that, you know, travels hundreds, if not, you know, a thousand miles or more uh, downwind, that the soot lifted into the stratosphere creates a darkening of the northern hemisphere for a year or more. And the impact that has on crops grown around the world and what that does to food supply chains globally uh, what that does to commerce, the terror it invokes in people, the civil unrest that it creates when others realize that this can happen in more places. The consequences are quite extreme, and yet I regret there are so few Americans who understand what's at stake here and understand um, that this is a, a real palpable threat. Real palpable threats? I'd prefer if we didn't have that. But anyway, it's not all bad. This is a problem we can fix. Seriously. More from Joan Rolfing, President and COO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is, the podcast from Now This. You're listening to my full interview with Joan Rolfing, president and COO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. We were talking about the, well, nuclear threat and what it takes to keep the world unblown up. Just like for preparation for a, a global pandemic, many listeners might think that nuclear security is something that just happens, that people are just taking care of it. But we also thought, you know, that a pandemic would be taken care of. We also thought that there were people making sure no one stormed the Capitol. Um, so how many smart people does it take to, to, to keep the world safe? A lot. <laughs> a lot. And we don't have enough of those people. So, yeah, nuclear security is, is kind of a niche field. And it takes, I, I would venture to guess, if we look at the global workforce associated with some aspect of new nuclear security, it's hundreds of thousands of people. Um, you know, there's just a huge... Um, infrastructure and supply chain associated with uh, with nuclear issues. And if we're talking about the weapons side, I read a statistic in the last few days that 
there are some 10,000 people, Americans in the US alone, managing the US uh, ICBM force. These are the intercontinental ballistic missiles that are deployed throughout the upper Midwest and the United States that carry nuclear weapons that can be launched on a moment's notice and flown you know, virtually anywhere in the world. So it's a, it's a very large endeavor. And that having been said, I will say, you know, since I entered this field now some 35 years ago, you know, it used to be at the, at the time when I started working on nuclear issues that we were in the heart of the Cold War. Everybody understood that we were at risk of potential nuclear annihilation. It was much higher on the radar screens of the public and of our government officials. And there were a lot of people lined up to work on this. People were motivated to, to do something to reduce risks. It's a very different era today. It's a field that I would say is in decline. And we see evidence of that in a number of, of different ways. We see a kind of hollowing out of the expertise in government. We see you know, a diminished pipeline coming out of universities of people who are interested in working on this. We see evidence within our government of lack of attention um, and the kind of uh, you know, professional standards being applied to maintaining these systems that are required. And just to give the audience a flavor of, well, what does that look like? You know, some years ago, now five or six years ago, there were a whole series of incidents reported on unfortunate incidents observed in the Air Force where, uh, you know, missile launch command posts in the Midwest, there was a series of blast doors being left open for pizza deliveries, believe it or not, to the missile command posts. There was a com the commander of the entire ICBM force, the U.S. land-based missile force, so this is a high-ranking general, was relieved of his duty after a drunken bender in Moscow, of all places. He went to Moscow, he consorted with various uh, Russian women, he went to a karaoke bar to perform, he began missing meetings. Um, these things don't instill confidence. And then one other incident, about a dozen years ago, there was an inadvertent, this is really pretty stunning, somehow the Air Force mixed up live nuclear bombs with dummy weapons that they use for training purposes. And instead of loading the dummy bombs to the aircraft to move them from uh, one base in the US to another, they inadvertently uploaded six live nuclear weapons, flew it halfway across the country, uh, actually from Minot, North Dakota to Barksdale, Louisiana, left him sitting virtually unattended on the runway for a 12-hour period until somebody figured out, oh my God, these are live nuclear weapons. I had one commander-in-chief of strategic command tell me he would have sworn that that could never happen because their procedures in place were so strong and so solid for preventing that kind of a, a mishap, uh, effectively a loss of control of a nuclear weapon until it happened and they realized, all right, they're not up to snuff in terms of their performance and following procedures to prevent this kind of inadvertent incident from happening. So this is a bit of a long expose on reasons why I'm worried that, you know, your question, how many people does it take to manage nuclear security? We're, we're letting our guard down. And that's because uh, at some level, I think in the military, this is, there's a realization that these weapons are not really usable as weapons of war. They're used to deter. And uh, since they're not weapons of war, you know, the people who go into this part of the service are not the people who are get, getting, uh, by and large, promoted uh, quickly and into the more desirable disciplines. And it's become a bit of a backwater. So uh, this is a troubling trend. Right, because these are people who are just human beings doing their jobs, just like I, as like a reporter, might misunderstand a fact and, and get something wrong. And that's an error I make in my, in, in my daily job. 
these are people who just might screw up. Is is this when you said earlier you're worried about inadvertent use of weapons? Is is this what you're pointing to? I'm very worried about that, and that is partly what I'm pointing to. And let me just uh, offer a caveat here, which is you know the Americans who are in our armed forces who are performing this vital mission of of stewarding our nuclear forces are you know, doing really important work. And this is not meant to be a personal criticism of any of them. But if you take a step back and you look at the system that we've created from a systemic standpoint, our nuclear system is extraordinarily complex. It's a system of systems with weapons mated to missiles, connected to communication systems, connected to humans. And any kind, any time you have that kind of a complex system, right? Uh, who among us knows of any human system that is not subject to errors, to human mistakes, or to technology failures? And so I don't, you know, I don't think we can be confident that any system, let alone our nuclear system, is foolproof and that it won't be subject to, to failure. And let me give you just you know, one or two examples of, of uh, cl close calls or false warning incidents, because these have been endemic since the beginning of the nuclear age. There are dozens and dozens of these incidents. A couple stand out. Uh, 1979, November, 3 a.m., the National Security Advisor to President Carter, as uh, a big Brzezinski, gets a phone call. It's the, you know, the fabled 3 a.m. phone call. And he's told that the United States is under attack by the Soviet Union and that there are several hundred incoming missiles. And he thinks, you know, these are his last minutes. And he decides to wait a few minutes to wait for the officer to, to hopefully get additional information from some other early warning systems to confirm what's happening. And ultimately, he gets the call back that they've confirmed from other systems that it appears that there really aren't incoming missiles. Uh, and it was later discovered that somehow, inexplicably, and they still don't have an explanation for this, a training tape, uh, not a tape, I mean, it, it was actually some kind of software was inadvertently loaded into the live early warning system and appeared on the command displays at the National Military Command Center, as well as at NORAD, the North American Air Defense. Uh, so this, you know, is a moment that really gives you pause. Um, it was demarched by the Russians. And then, as if that weren't enough, within seven months, there's two other incidents in the June 1980 timeframe. One of them, a report, again, that sounds eerily similar, the initial report is that there's 220 incoming Soviet missiles. And then a few minutes later, the call comes in, now it's 2,200 incoming Soviet missiles. And ultimately they conclude that this too is a false warning. And they discover that it happened as the result of a chip failure, a 46 cent chip in the system. There are more I could go on, and the Russians have had their own version of this too. So, so that you know, this is something that really gives you pause. How long can we continue to rely on this system working in a foolproof way, indefinitely, in perpetuity, uh, without a mistake, without a component failure? I think that's a pretty risky bet. Wow. Yeah, that's a ridiculous amount of examples. And it's something that was just, it seems like a crazy movie like that, uh, the Matthew Broderick movie War Games, yeah, but it's right. things that are actually They really happening. do happen. They really do happen. And so, you know, this is if there's one thing I would want the audience to understand, the system of nuclear deterrence and all of the trappings and force structure uh, that we have built up over the years is... Uh, it has become an extraordinarily complex and therefore highly risky uh, and challenging to manage system. And you, you mentioned deterrence. I want to ask you about that. Do you think deterrence is a stagnant policy? Why or why not? Yeah, I, I absolutely think it's a stagnant policy. So for the audience, 
the system of nuclear deterrence. So the United States adopted and kind of led the rest of the world in developing a strategy for managing nuclear weapons and managing the nuclear threat called nuclear deterrence. And at the heart of the concept is the idea that, I mean, especially, so let's bring the audience back. You know, we're talking about the time frame between 1945 and 1950 is when this concept began to gel and take hold and some very smart thinkers were beginning to put their head to how do we protect the the world and the country from the threat of of nuclear attack and nuclear use by others and uh in fact it, you know was only a few years after our nuclear tests that the russians acquired their own nuclear capability so it really focused the mind we realized pretty quickly that there are no defenses against nuclear weapons we we still don't notwithstanding the fact that we've been working for decades on trying to create ballistic missile defenses we still don't have effective defenses against nuclear weapons and the best defense we could come up with was a strategy of threatening to retaliate against a nuclear attack with a, a massive uh, response and that by threatening in a credible way and having the forces and the survivable forces to be able to respond to a nuclear attack with an attack that we could deter an adversary from ever considering an attack. That's the, the essence of what nuclear deterrence is. And, it, and it's based on uh, game theory and it's based on a fundamental understanding or belief that our ad adversary will be rational, that they won't choose to attack and therefore we'll have some strategic stability between any two pairs of countries because uh, to do so would be suicidal. So what happens in a world where maybe you don't have a rational adversary? Maybe your adversary is, to, adversary is a terrorist organization that um, isn't worried about a suicide attack and can anonymously deliver a crude nuclear device in the heart of an American city. I don't think deterrence applies to that scenario. Uh, what happens when instead of talking about a single adversary, you're talking about multiple adversaries and the complexity of a nine player system where there are nine nuclear weapon states? What happens when the slow technology that we designed this system around in you know, circa 1950, in the 1950s timeframe, we had one nuclear adversary and we were flying gravity bombs on slow flying aircraft. Fast forward to today, we have very sophisticated bombs on very, uh, you know, hypersonic fast uh, missiles that can land on the other side of the planet within minutes. We give our leaders decision time of maybe five to seven minutes if we're lucky to make a decision to digest the information they're being given about incoming missiles and to decide whether or not to launch an attack. It's mission impossible. And so this is a long answer to your question, is deterrence a stagnant policy? I think it is. We are well beyond the time where we need to rethink our fundamental strategy for managing the threats of nuclear weapons. It's a 70-year-old strategy. I mean, what discipline do you know is still clinging to a 70-year-old strategy for how it operates when the world has changed in every dimension, politically, technically, socially, in this 70-year period? So I think the work of our generation and something that NTI is deeply invested in is looking at how do we protect humanity from nuclear devastation in perpetuity? How do we manage nuclear technology safely for the benefit of mankind and in a way that we can have confidence that a nuclear weapon will never be used again? And, and yeah, and so obviously we can't go back and not have nuclear weapons. So at this point, without getting too into the weeds, what alternative or alternatives would you offer in terms of an alternative to deterrence? So one of the wonderful things about the technological revolution that we're in and have been in for a period of decades is that it opens up a lot of opportunities for us to build a regulatory and control regime around nuclear technology that 
would be much more effective for controlling the technology and preventing its misuse and misapplication than this current, I'm, I'm going to call the nuclear deterrent system a kind of a you know, very sophisticated Rube Goldberg contraption where we're threatening each other with nuclear annihilation. Why not instead build a robust detection, monitoring, and verification system using all of the sensor tools at our disposal, including, by the way, machine learning and artificial intelligence, all of the data we've collected that shows us patterns of behavior between and among states and within states that gives us a much deeper understanding. It becomes almost impossible to hide any kind of activity or behavior in this new world of, of big data and signals drawn from the big data. We have a lot of ways to sense things. And I should say also as a result of the, the hard work that, that we, uh, the US and Russia together have done to build a verification system for some of the existing arms control treaties that we have, we've figured out how to do a lot to verify reductions in numbers of weapon systems. We've also done a lot to try and uh, better understand the uh, production of nuclear materials around the world. And there's a whole agency, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that's constituted to help ensure the uh, peaceful use of nuclear power and, uh, and nuclear technology. So, you know, my suggestion is a much better strategy would be a robust regulatory and control regime around nuclear technology that would allow us all to sleep at night without the threat of sudden nuclear annihilation, which is a you know, fundamental violation of our human rights. Everyone talks about the right to free speech or the right to bear arms, but rarely do we talk about the right to avoid sudden nuclear annihilation. What does the future of all this look like? Inevitable doomsday destruction? More with Joan Rolfing after this. I'm Sean Morrow, and this is Who Is. Today we're talking with Joan Rolfing, president and COO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Before we even move toward uh, the present, I want to ask you about the beginning of all this. Uh, we only have one example, like two bombs, but one moment in history of use of nuclear weapons. And there's ongoing debate as to whether or not President Truman was justified in his decision to use weapons against Japan during World War II. Can you talk about how this is viewed within the, the nuclear policy world among nuclear policy uh, wonks such as yourself? And also, what is your perspective? So uh, honestly, what I would say is that I don't spend a lot of time focused on that or thinking of that. I'm much more interested in you know trying to figure out how we get out of the ditch that we're in uh, so that we're not hostages to this technology, but can figure out how to live uh, peacefully with it um, for you know many generations into the future. Um, so I, you know, I hate to say maybe this is a bad thing, but there's not a lot of active discourse within the nuclear policy community about decisions that were taken by President Truman um, and and even really by his predecessor. Uh, and to, you know, to develop the program and, and bring it to the point where it was deployable. Um, so I, I don't see a lot of profit in, in trying to second guess, um, you know, the, the conditions at the time. Um, yeah, much more interested in, in looking ahead. So yeah, let's move towards more recent history. There was a moment in January of this year when Speaker Nancy Pelosi seemed to fear that then President Trump might be tempted to launch a nuclear strike. Does the Nuclear Command Authority of the United States sufficiently protect the world from an ill-considered strike by the Commander-in-Chief? Well, unfortunately, I think this is part of the precariousness of the system. This might be surprising to listeners, but 
the President of the United States has the sole and exclusive authority to authorize the launch of a nuclear weapon. And there were rational reasons for this. After the atomic weapons were used in 1945 and we understood the gravity of the use of those weapons and their destructive power, President Truman, and I, I think, you know, at the time this was smart as the military was beginning to think of these as a military weapon and how they might deploy them, Truman made clear that no nuclear weapon would be used without presidential authority, that he and then each succeeding president since him would have the sole authority to make such a, a, a grave uh, fundamental decision in the interests of the United States. Unfortunately, what nobody could conceive of is that the flip side of that challenge is there may be moments in our history where we worry for one reason or another that a president is um, unstable. And there have been a, you know, a couple of incidents. One of them was the recent uh, January event where um, the Speaker of the House became concerned about the kind of emotional state of the, the former president. And also when Nixon was in his final days in office, we now understand that uh, this was a period of pretty significant instability, that um, he was not stable, that he was alleged to be drinking, and some of the people um, very close to him were worried that he might do something untoward with respect to nuclear weapons and try to authorize a launch. And, you know, it's, it's famously said that the Secretary of Defense at the time, Jim Schlesinger, gave instructions to the people around him who would have been receiving the launch order that they should not execute that launch. If they are to get an order, they should come speak to Jim Schlesinger first. And some have argued, well, that's maybe a somewhat extra constitutional uh, instruction that he ordered. But I think at a pragmatic common sense level, that was the right thing to do. We don't want nuclear weapons ever to be, uh, the use of them to be contemplated in a, in a way that's, uh, you know, motivated for the wrong reasons, that's not serious, that's not thoughtful. But, you know, it is, I think it is, again, quite precarious that uh, one man uh, in the U.S. system, and we believe this is true in, in other countries as well, has the authority to singularly launch these weapons. And one hotspot we haven't addressed is Israel and Iran. Israel, uh, you know, isn't on the official list of nuclear, country, of nuclear countries, but it's widely believed they have them. Uh, Iran could soon have nuclear weapons. Can you talk a little bit about this part of the world? Yeah, the Middle East is a tinderbox. It's something we worry quite a bit about. I think I forgot to mention Israel on my list of nine, but they are generally believed to have a nuclear arsenal. And of course, we're watching uh, very closely and very concerned about the developments in Iran, uh, particularly after uh, our withdrawal from the Iran agreement, it's given license to uh, the Iranians to, to begin to walk back from really critical elements of that agreement. It's, uh, it's really concerning because we know the Saudis have also declared publicly that if Iran acquires a nuclear weapon, they will undertake to develop their own arsenal. So it's, there's no question, it is a proliferation hotspot and we very much have to worry about the further spread of these weapons. It just increases the nature of the challenge and the, the probability that a nuclear weapon will eventually be used. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm an anxious person. Uh, I, I wonder how often, how much or how often should I be, should I be worrying about this? Uh, and are, like, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Should people just be terrified? How should we be feeling about this? How should we be going about our days when knowing this, this, these weapons are holding the world hostage? Yeah, well, thank you so much for that question, because I realize so often we go down into the rabbit hole of doom and gloom when we, <laughs> when we talk about these. You know, you should be worried about it. We need more people to be aware of the threat. We need more people to be um, asking their elected representatives, what are you doing to keep me safe from nuclear weapons, from nuclear threats? 
I'm optimistic about the future. The good news is, you know, this is a, a totally man-made problem. There are man-made solutions. This is a preventable global catastrophe, but we can only prevent a global catastrophe with nuclear weapons if we prioritize this and make this an issue that we're gonna work on. I think the nuclear issue, it's, it's real, right? There's a small number of existential threats that are threatening the future of mankind. And I really do mean that. I don't want people to think this is just hyperbole and I'm being overly dramatic, but 1945 was a game changer in the history of humanity. It's the point at which we crossed the threshold where we could destroy the species for the first time. And since that time, with the advance of technology, you know, there are new ways in which we can do destroy ourselves as a species, um, you know, biological weapons. We have for all of the enormous, exciting health benefits uh, that biotechnology has brought us, it also has given us the ability to manipulate the human genome and to create designer bugs that can kill us and can wipe out the species that could be this pandemic on steroids. That's a huge challenge. Climate is an existential threat. Artificial general intelligence could pose an existential threat. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a race to see whether uh, the power of the technologies that mankind has created, that humankind has created, outstrips our wisdom. Will our wisdom catch up? Will we find a way to govern these existential technologies and get our arms around them for the benefit of mankind for millions of years to come? Or do things end? Are we the generation that after the 10,000 generations that came before us, we betray them <laughs> and we betray the future? by messing it up and, and not being able to survive these technologies in this century. That, that sounds maybe not very optimistic, but here's the optimistic um, nugget in here. I really do believe, and nuclear in particular among them, this is such a tractable issue. There are a small number of nuclear weapon states. The technology is, you know, is really visible. We know what we need to do to constrain it and to build constraints around it and safeguards and management around it. Um, but we just have to elevate this uh, up our radar screen and you know roll up our sleeves and get to work on it. And I think the progress we can make on nuclear and developing the structures and the international governance system to tackle nuclear could serve as a great model for how we might tackle some of the other hard existential challenges. So lots of reasons to believe, and the most important message I wanna leave your listeners with is we're not helpless in this mission. We have it within our means to protect ourselves from this threat, to move to a better place, to protect the incredible promise of mankind and the many generations that uh, can follow us we just need to get at it. And at risk of being a little punny, you, you've said that this is a man-made problem. Uh, a, a trend I've personally noticed is that a lot of the people working to fix it now are, are women. From yourself to, I know, in 2017 or 2018, the Nobel Prize went to ICANN, which is led by uh, Beatrice Finn. I don't remember what year that was exactly. Um, and then I've noticed there's a lot of articles, a number of commentators have recently argued that nuclear diplomacy needs more women and that only women can prevent a nuclear apocalypse. How, in your view, does gender equity serve to advance this field and enhance security? So I think gender equity is a great thing just in general, right? That won't surprise you to hear me say that. I think anytime we can bring diverse perspectives to bear on a hard challenge, uh, whether it's you know racial, ethnic, geographic, gender, anytime uh, we can bring diversity to bear, we get better solutions. And you know, and that's been studied. Innovation, problem solving, um, it, it always is done better uh, with more perspectives. I don't think that women are necessarily a game changer in this, what I would take note of, although I am greatly encouraged, don't get me wrong, and I think it's important that we work on um, not just gender diversity, but gender parity across the workforce for the reasons that I just mentioned. 
But I also note that within this um, re self-reinforcing system called nuclear deterrence that I talked about before, the women who've been promoted up through the ranks in that system and also the people of color have done so on the basis that they have bought into the basic tenets of the system. As uh, Michelle Flournoy, another leader in this uh, national security sector observed, she said there's something called um, the consensual straitjacket. This is a great con concept that she coined where you know, women in particular are asked to don a consensual straitjacket before they're allowed into the room um, and given the, you know, the keys or the authority to manage a particular system or, or issue. I think that's changing slowly over time as women throughout government and throughout positions of authority become more prevalent. It's easier for them to express perspectives that aren't necessarily aligned with the status quo. And this is something I've seen over you know, my 35 years in this work that this, this change is happening. And that is really positive whenever you have a voice, whether male or female, who can challenge the status quo in a healthy way and help effect uh, change and help a system adapt so that it's more effective to the current threat environment, that's a good thing. Definitely women have a role to play. And yeah, of course, uh, identity isn't everything, but it just strikes me as something notable. Uh, Kathleen Hicks is now the highest ranking woman in the history of the military, the U.S. military. As a woman who's been working in defense for so long, what words of encouragement do you have for young women and all of the young people listening who might be considering a career in defense or who may seek to influence United States defense policy through electoral politics? Yeah. So first, let me just say, I think it's fantastic to see Kath Hicks as the Deputy Secretary of Defense. She's incredibly capable and she will be a role model for so many women. So uh, it, it's absolutely wonderful. I will say in the dark ages, when I started working at the Pentagon, there were virtually no female role models. I, mean, I can think of within the Office of the Secretary of Defense, like one a uh, professional woman. And, you know, she was an exception by definition. Without going into too many details, it was a it was a tough environment for a young woman. Whenever I would show up at a meeting, it was assumed I was there to take notes and serve coffee. That environment has obviously changed quite significantly over the years, and that's a positive thing. And that creates space um, and, you know, role models have been built up for, for younger women who are entering the field today. To them, I would just say, please come join us in building a better future. Please come join us in helping to create the new security paradigm that we need for today's world. We need diverse perspectives. We need fresh thinking. Uh, we need outside-the-box problem-solving and a willingness to question status quo solutions that are no longer fit for purpose in today's world. So I, I would be, you know, very encouraging of uh, the next generation of women that this is a field where you, where your leadership is needed and welcomed. And it seems like you're saying that we need new ideas. And of course, that's exciting. Um, it's a place where young people can have existential impact. Uh, is, is that right? Is that right that young people can be kind of, of leading this? Absolutely. Young people have got to step into this issue, right? I mean, nuclear technology and the existential technologies we talked about, as you mentioned earlier, we're not, no one's talking about uninventing nuclear weapons. That's not going to happen. Um, nuclear technology, the knowledge of nuclear weapons is going to be with humankind for the rest of our days, however short or long that may be, where we um, can exist as a species. And so this is a multi-generational challenge of the nth degree, and we need young people to be vested in this. This is their future. It's our collective future. Um, it's humanity's future that we have to plan for. So I do think it's a really exciting time because I feel like we're entering into a period of transformation and I see enormous youth energy building up, particularly within a community called the effective altruism community, which is focused on 
trying to manage these existential threats so that there is a, a line of sight forward for humanity beyond the next year, beyond the next decade, and beyond this century. And there's a growing understanding that the status quo and the old systems and the old way of thinking about governance that has brought us this far may not be sufficient for getting us into the next century and beyond. So it is actually a quite exciting period to be working on these issues and to see this renewed energy and commitment to um, seizing this challenge. That was Joan Rolfing, president and COO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Next week, we're looking at a person from the place where America first tested its nuclear weapons and where the raw materials for those weapons, like uranium, are mined. It's also a place where the government wants to store nuclear waste underground basically forever, which is something that a lot of people from New Mexico are not into, and which former congresswoman and now first Native American to serve as Secretary of the Interior has the power to do something about. Next week on Who Is, it's Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland. This has been Who Is, a podcast from Now This. I'm Sean Morrow, your host. Michael McDowell is our producer. Laura Tillman is our associate producer. Mona Hassan is our writer. Editing and mixing by Jordan Balaber. Studio support from Pedro Alvira and Amanda Earle. Our executive producers are Nancy Hahn, Brett Kushner, Sarah Frank, and Mangesh Hattakuder. And now this, Team Exaros is our chief content officer, and Nathan Stephanopoulos is our president. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if there's someone you'd like to hear an episode on, reach out to me on social media at SNMRRW or shoot me an email, sm at nowthismedia.com. 